Books. 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 Hello, and welcome to Didn't Read It, the podcast that stains all of society with its degeneracy. Oh my. I am your host, Grace Todd. Possibly a degenerate myself, also a writer, editor, and book gremlin. And with me today is Ty Phelps. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me back, Grace. It's nice to be here in in the chair, talking into the mic, doing the thing. (laughs) Welcome back, Ty. Thank you so much. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I am also a writer. I am a writer, a musician, and a teacher. You can find me around Richmond teaching at assorted colleges, doing different readings, playing drums in some bands, uh, that sort of thing. Bludgeoning the children with literature. Yes, trying to, into the skulls, go the words, go the ideas. Uh (laughs) Of all the old men yelling at clouds, Ty, you're one of my favorites. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I do have some, the gray hair is very present in the beard, and I am on the other side of 40, so that seems fair. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Yeah. The clouds, will they'll listen to you one of these days. That would really be great. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> I can't wait. I promise. I'll keep yelling just to, be so, just to be sure. That way I can take credit when eventually the clouds listen. That's good. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. I, I like this plan. Yeah. So Ty, before we kick off, have you been enjoying any fiction lately? Anything you really want to like sing to the heavens about? Speaking of yelling at clouds? Ooh, sure. One of the things I do is I work for VCU's Cabell First Novelist Award, and so I read a lot of debut novels. I've read a couple of excellent ones. One is called I Keep My Exoskeletons to Myself by Marissa Crane. <laughs> it's a great title. It's uh, a very good Really title. cool kind of speculative fiction novel that I enjoyed a lot. And a uh, really interesting novel of kind of about fandom called Y slash N which I thought stood for yes, no, but actually stands for your name, like in oh. fan fiction by Esther Yee. Pretty cool book. And then I'm reading Ling Ma's short story collection right now, Bliss Montage. And Ooh. the first four or five are, are pretty cool. So that's that's what I'm up to these days in the book world. Nice. Yeah. I just finished reading Brian Washington's Family Meal, which was a delight. I enjoyed it so much. I haven't read anything since his debut, which I remember liking a lot. So I'll have to get on that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a sucker for anything set in the service industry. Same. Yeah. That'll yeah. that'll get me every time. Mm-hmm. Well, Ty, I have brought you here today to discuss a book that I'm not sure I enjoyed. <laughs> all right. Okay. Because in the world of classic lit, uh, they can't all be winners. They really can't. I will say it is a very interesting book, and I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. And I originally found it. So this is one of those books that is probably more notable for what and who it influenced rather than for the work itself. Mm -hmm. One of the only reasons that it is still in print is because it was marked as notable by H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. And he devoted a couple of paragraphs to it in a book that he wrote about the genre of supernatural horror. He marked it out as being a notable kind of early-ish example of the genre. And based solely on the strength of that, it has 
sort of survived, although there's not a ton of scholarship on it. Mm -hmm. And the book is Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow. Okay. So one of the reasons that we are talking about this book today is actually that I impulse bought a copy of it, Mm -hmm. in part because the blurb on the front said, one of the most important works of American supernatural fiction. And I am not sure I agree with that. But it also (laughs) said, written by Robert W. Chambers, underneath Contribution by H.P. Lovecraft. And I was like, okay, fine. I did not realize when I bought it and brought it home and before I decided to do an episode about it that it recently had a resurgence in interest because it apparently features or concepts and characters from it apparently feature fairly heavily in the first season of True Detective. Oh, interesting. Which I have not watched. Yeah, me neither. Full disclosure. I've heard it's quite a good show in some ways. So if you are out there and you are a True Detective fan, this might have... Some fun extra context for you, apparently. (laughs) Optional homework for the rest of your life, all of you true detective fans. But I did not know about that until I was already well in my research. And so we will not be addressing that. And if you have tuned into the episode being like, oh, my God, I can't wait for them to talk about true detective. I am sorry. That was just it. You heard it. (laughs) And now it's over. (laughs) But other than true detective... We are here today to talk about The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers, not to be confused with Robert Chambers, the murderer, Oh, which gets a little difficult when you are Googling one of them for research reasons. It does, I imagine. Do you remember the preppy killer? It rings a vague bell, but I know. Nasty piece of work, murdered his girlfriend in like 1986, also named Robert Chambers. Yeah, the Roberts Chambers are a a mixed bag. Yeah, it seems like it. Apologies to any other Robert Chambers out there who might be lovely people for all we know, but we're 0 for 2 here. Or 1 1 and 0.5 for 2? I don't know. You haven't told me about the guy yet, so I don't know. Also, Robert Chambers, the murderer's dad, was also Robert Chambers, so it's just Roberts Chambers all the way down. It's a tough look. Anyway, this Robert Chambers wrote The King in Yellow. It was his second work of fiction to be published, definitely his most notable, and it is actually a collection of short stories. Okay. The first four of which are tied together by the presence of a play within the universe called The King in Yellow. Cool. Okay. I love a play within a, like a little framing device like that, you know, gets my, gets my Hamlet up. (laughs) So we today are going to talk primarily about the first short story in the collection, The Repairer of Reputations. And that is partly because I think it is sort of the thesis statement from which the rest of the stories proceed. Makes sense. In a lot of ways. Also, the first four short stories are tied together and then the remaining short stories are pretty unremarkable works of like gothic romance. Oh, okay. Interesting. Which is what Robert Chambers wound up devoting the rest of his career to. Gothic romance and adventure stories. You know, uh, whatever milks your Guernsey. (laughs) So he had this, he released this collection of short stories, made a name for himself, and then pivoted to writing incredibly successful popular fiction for the rest of his life. 
And it Mm. was the kind of popular fiction where each book he wrote, the way I understand it, especially once he was really successful, every time he released a new book, the previous book would go out of print. They were like soap operas, basically. Like people just ate them. Okay, okay. They got consumed so quickly and so broadly that you didn't need to keep them in print because people would just buy the next one. Got it. Interesting. And yet I have never heard of this writer. Well, until you told me we were going to do an episode about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. What a lot of academics, not a lot, there is not a ton of academic work done on Robert W. Chambers. But what people will point out is that he was probably one of those authors whose reputation was undone by virtue of his popularity. Mm-hmm. Stephen King syndrome kind of. Yeah, I yeah. would say more like James Patterson. Oh, okay. Granted, I have a feeling the rest of his work wasn't great, but it was popular. Sometimes wonderful things are popular. Sometimes they are. Other times they aren't. I have not read any Robert W. Chambers. I'm excited to learn more about this first story and the linked stories and the play within the stories. But yeah, I have to read an adventure novel and get back to you listeners uh, about that. And maybe one day I will have time to. I started to skim one of the novels he did about I don't know if you're aware that there was a whole period in French history where Paris was overtaken by, like, communists. I I didn't know. I I don't have a particular framework for that, but it doesn't shock me. Communists is probably the wrong word, but it was, they call it the commune period. Mm, mm -hmm. And he wrote an adventure novel set during this period that, spoiler alert, I do not think was particularly pro-left. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Perhaps a rugged individual showed all those communists the error of their ways. You know what? Via let's, manly adventure and let's, whatnot. Let's put a pin in that rugged individualism and manly adventure. And... Okay. <laughs> Happily. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're going to do today is focus on The Repairer of Reputations, which of the four stories that comprise the linked stories that involve the King in Yellow is the only one to be set in the future from when it was published. And again, I think partly because of that, it represents to Chambers' mind a potential future toward which the other stories could be pointed, Mm. Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Sure. And the rest of the stories are much smaller sort of domestic dramas in very familiar settings, mostly Paris, a couple are in America, This one is set in like an alternate universe future. I love a good alternate universe future. (laughs) Yeah. It gives me hope of alternatives. Uh, Let's put a pin in that too. Okay, fine. (laughs) Just we're just pinning all sorts of stuff that I, you know, I'm happy to pin it. But by virtue of that, I think, like I said, it's a lot more of a thesis statement because we are seeing Robert W. Chambers design a world for us. And there's Mm -hmm. just a lot more that you can play with and parse out and infer from that. Yeah. So with all of that prefacing, possibly too much prefacing. I mean, look, a good long preface is a lovely thing. This has a preface. How long is its preface? It's very short. Oh. So, Well, it's not really a preface. What's the term? An epitaph? Epigraph. Epigraph. That's it. Yes. Wait, no. Doesn't an epigraph go after? No. Okay. Epitaph goes after. uh, After you're dead. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of the epis. It's not an EpiPen. Nope. It's not but not an epidural. EpiPens are after allergies. Epidurals right. are after labor has begun. Right. 
and epitaphs are after your final labors have ceased. Indeed. But an epigraph maybe opens a book. Well, well let's we'll put a pin in the definition, <laughs> but let's read whatever's there. I'm taking a sewing class right now, so all this pinning really, you know, a nice little piece of synergy. We're well the, on our way to from a the scene. universe. Stop it. <laughs> all right. So the collection opens with an excerpt from the fictional play, The King in Yellow. Along the shore, the cloud waves break. The twin suns sink behind the lake. The shadows lengthen in Carcosa. Strange is the night where black stars rise, and strange moons circle through the skies, but stranger still is lost Carcosa. Songs that the Hyades shall sing, where flap the tatters of the king, must die unheard in dim Carcosa. Song of my soul, my voice is dead. Die thou unsung, as tears unshed shall dry and die in lost Carcosa. From Casilda's song in The King in Yellow, Act 1, Scene 2. So that is our opening. Carcosa sounds like it's in rough shape. Carcosa's having a bummer time. Yeah. At least I think. We never really get enough of the play within the story to find out. Much, at least. I did find out that apparently some people have tried to reconstruct the play The King in Yellow, and I have no idea where they're getting this information from because there is not that much information huh. in these stories. That's so interesting. Anyway, come with me into the world of the repairer of reputations. Toward the end of the year 1920, the government of the United States had practically completed the program, adopted during the last months of President Winthrop's administration. The country was apparently tranquil. Everybody knows how the tariff and labor questions were settled. The war with Germany, incident on that country's seizure of the Samoan Islands, had left no visible scars upon the Republic, and the temporary occupation of Norfolk by the invading army had been forgotten in the joy over repeated naval victories and the subsequent ridiculous plight of General von Gartenlaub's forces in the state of New Jersey. Okay. Uh-huh. We are in an alternate 1920, mm -hmm. keeping in mind the book was published in 1895. Good. Yeah. Okay. So we so have, quite a bit. We yeah. are projecting a couple decades into the future. Yeah. And the United States is essentially very, very militarized. We have gone to war with Prussia and won. Mm -hmm. And the nation is exceedingly prosperous, deeply militarized, and undergoing waves of enormous change. It says, Everywhere, good architecture was replacing bad. And even in New York, a sudden craving for decency had swept away a great portion of the existing horrors. Okay. Uh-huh. See, this, this, this feels like some, you know, whatever Giuliani's mayor bullshit was. <laughs> uh, anyway, just... Okay. Broken windows policing, That's it. That's 1895 it. style. Jesus. Okay. Streets had been widened, properly paved, and lighted. Trees had been planted, squares laid out, elevated structures demolished, and underground roads built to replace them. The new government buildings and barracks were fine bits of architecture, and the long system of stone caves which completely surrounded the island had been turned into parks, oh. which proved a godsend to the population. And then... <laughs> We had profited well by the latest treaties with France and England, the exclusion of foreign-born Jews as a measure of self-preservation, the settlement of the new independent Negro state of Suwanee, the checking of immigration, the new laws concerning naturalization, and the gradual centralization of power in the executive, 
all contributed to national calm and prosperity. Wow. There it is. Uh-huh. Okay, I was waiting yeah. um, for the racist shoe to drop. Um, Found it. Yeah. Now, question, because I do recall listening to an episode where, the, you know, the, the idea was the, the writer was including sort of those things with a satirical bent. Is that what's happening here, or are we just sort of drifting into, you know... Why don't we get through the story? Okay. And then you can tell me what you think. Uh, that sounds fine. All right. All right. So a little more world building. Please. Before we turn to our narrator. And actually, you might be able to help me because I cannot for the life of me figure out what this next section is supposed to mean. When the government solved the Indian problem and squadrons of Indian cavalry scouts in native costume were substituted for the pitiable organizations tacked on to the tail of skeletonized regiments by a former secretary of war, the nation drew a long sigh of relief. Uh, it's a lot of adjectives. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've read this 12 times and listened to an audiobook version, and I still can't figure out what that is supposed to yeah, mean. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Listeners, if you have an idea what he's trying to convey here, shoot me an email. I beg you didn't read it pod at gmail.com there it is anyway when after the colossal congress of religions bigotry and intolerance were laid in their graves and kindness and charity began to draw warring sects together many thought the millennium had arrived at least in the new world which after all is a world by itself but self-preservation is the first law and the united states had to look on in helpless sorrow as germany italy Spain, and Belgium writhed in the throes of anarchy, while Russia, watching from the Caucasus, stooped and bound them one by one. Mm. This is quite the sort of geopolitical introduction to a short story. Uh-huh. We have just a little more. Okay. The summer of 1900 will live in the memories of New York people for many a cycle. The Dodge statue was removed in that year. In the following winter began that agitation for the repeal of the laws prohibiting suicide, which bore its final fruit in the month of April 1920, when the first government lethal chamber was opened on Washington Square. Okay. Mm-hmm. There was a pivot I wasn't quite expecting. Uh-huh. All right. So that is the New York we have set the scene in. Parks where everyone's happy, but also you're now allowed to kill yourself, and there appears to be some sort of state apparatus to help you? Yes. So the government lethal chamber is, and they're all over the country, mm -hmm. but we are preoccupied primarily with the one in Washington Square. In well, New York. I mean, New York, like we get it. Everything. It's apparently okay. a lovely bit of classical architecture. Sure. Uh, the architecture is both good and fine. It has columns. Ooh. There's a nice marble statue of the three fates. But not the Dodge statue. In front of, no, the Dodge statue has got to go. Okay. And... We are beginning on the day when the lethal chamber is being officially and publicly opened okay. by a military squadron. And our narrator has walked down to watch. Okay. Yeah. The first thing we learn about our narrator is that he has just left visiting his doctor and is now walking down to Washington Square. His doctor, Dr. Archer, mm -hmm. he has a little bit of a grudge against him because four years prior, he fell from his horse. And he says that he's a little upset still with Dr. Archer because 
What I minded was the mistake which he had made at first. When they picked me up from the pavement where I lay unconscious, I was carried to Dr. Archer, and he, pronouncing my brain affected, placed me in his private asylum where I was obliged to endure treatment for insanity. At mm. last he decided that I was well, and I, knowing that my mind had always been as sound as his, if not sounder, paid my tuition, as he jokingly called it, and left. I told him, smiling, that I would get even with him for his mistake, and he laughed heartily and asked me to call once in a while. Oh. But you know what? He is sane. Mm -hmm. He is loose. That's right. He is visiting Dr. Archer. Yeah. Well, not anymore. He's just left. Mm -hmm. And he's walking into Washington Square. And he's pondering the changes that have come over him in the intervening four years. He says that from a lazy young man about town, I had become active, energetic, temperate, and above all, oh, above all else, ambitious. Mm. There was only one thing which troubled me. It's always one. And this is where we meet the king in yellow. Oh. Ooh. During my convalescence, I had bought and read for the first time The King in Yellow. I remember after finishing the first act that it occurred to me that I had better stop. Mm. I started up and flung the book into the fireplace. The volume struck the barred grate and fell open on the hearth in the firelight. If I had not caught a glimpse of the opening words in the second act, I should never have finished it. But as I stooped to pick it up, my eyes became riveted to the open page, and with a cry of terror, or perhaps it was of joy so poignant that I suffered in every nerve, I snatched the thing out of the coals and crept shaking to my bedroom, where I read it and reread it, and wept and laughed and trembled with a horror which at times assails me yet. This is the thing that troubles me, for I cannot forget Carcosa, where black stars hang in the heavens where the shadows of men's thoughts lengthen in the afternoon, when the twin suns sink into the lake of Halley, and my mind will bear forever the memory of the pallid mask. Mm. I pray God will curse the writer, as the writer has cursed the world, with this beautiful, stupendous creation, terrible in its simplicity, irresistible in its truth, a world which now trembles before the king in yellow. Oh my. So, strong reaction to the texts. First hurling into the fire, then rescuing and happening upon a passage that, huh, okay. And a recurring theme is going to be that the King in Yellow is bad enough. Mm -hmm. The second half of the King in Yellow is when things really go off the rails for the reader. Okay. So our narrator goes on to tell us, It is well known how the book spread like an infectious disease from city to city, from continent to continent, barred out here, confiscated there, denounced by press and pulpit, censured even by the most advanced of literary anarchists. Hmm. No definite principles had been violated in those wicked pages. No doctrine promulgated, no convictions outraged. It could not be judged by any known standard. Hmm. Yet, although it was acknowledged that the supreme note of art had been struck in The King in Yellow, all felt that human nature could not bear the strain, nor thrive on words in which the essence of purest poison lurked. The very banality and innocence of the first act only allowed the blow to fall afterward with more awful effect. So this is like a piece of toxic content unleashing itself amongst the unsuspecting populace? It is a cursed text. Oh. And he read it while he was recovering oh, from his fall. Oh, dear. 
Yes. Did he read it at Dr. Archer's in the asylum? You know, they don't say. Or I at, don't think so. Okay. Because it does, I'm, I'm pretty sure it says somewhere that he procured it himself. Got so it, it must it. have been after Dr. Archer released him. It wasn't like a particularly bad piece of waiting room material. <laughs> you know. Uh, that would be a supremely funny place to leave a cursed text. Oh, yeah. It'd be a very efficient place to leave a cursed text, actually. Yeah, less so now, I guess, because we all have phones, but still. Maybe in like a waiting room, like in the bowels of a hospital where your phone doesn't work very well. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you're already seeing your doctor and then they send you off to the phlebotomist or something. Or like at a pediatrician's where maybe the kids are, they don't have phones yet, so they're still stuck reading the highlights that someone's already colored in. Now, does a cursed text still work if you don't have the reading comprehension skills to understand it? That's a good question. I, you know, I don't, I should know the logistics of a cursed text just because of the amount of Dungeons and Dragons that I've played. Yeah, I really but, thought that um, you were going to be our cursed text correspondent here. I would think like a certain amount of comprehension probably helps it get in deeper, but it might just be like saying the words. If you can sound them out, maybe that's what causes the thing is speaking it aloud. Uh, well, see, that's a little bit more like a Necronomicon-y. Okay. Well. That's more of a spell, I feel like, than a cursed Okay. Text. Clearly, we've got some some brushing up yeah, to do. Yeah, well, on. I'll consult the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide when I get home. Oh, good. Thank okay. you. Okay. You're welcome. So, it is the 13th day of April. The government lethal chamber is being established. And I'm going to try and remember to point out all of the little xenophobic details as we zoom past them. But it is a very important. Robert Chambers really wants you to know that the block, which had formerly consisted of a lot of shabby old buildings, used as cafes and restaurants for foreigners. Ah is what was knocked down to make way for the government lethal chamber, mm. which is in a beautiful park mm-hmm. and is being opened by the governor of New York, the mayor of New York and Brooklyn, the inspector general of police, the commandant of the state troops. Goodness gracious. Colonel Livingston, military aide to the president of the United States. Oh, my. General Blount, commanding at Governor's Island. Major General Hamilton, commanding the garrison of New York and Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Admiral Buffby oh of my. the fleet in the North River. Not him. Surgeon General Lansford, the staff of the National Free Hospital, Senators Wise and Franklin of New York, and the Commissioner of Public Works. And they're all surrounded by a squadron of hussars from the National Guard. Okay. That is uh, a lot of names. It's also, you might notice, a lot of military ranks. Because this is a New York that is just stuffed to the gills with the military, even though it is peacetime. Barracks everywhere. Garrisons, barracks, people marching up and down in formation. Mm -hmm. It's later noted that the bay is full of warships. Okay. And again, this is peacetime. This is just how it is now. And this is after the war with Prussia? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Because it is 1920. Everything has gone well. I mean, Europe is degenerating into chaos, but the United States is a wonderful, calm, militarized Uh haven. Haven for uh, now that, you know, the Indian problem and, you know, all the other and, you know, all the foreigners have been. Okay. Yes. Uh, I got it. Yeah. And now we have suicide chambers with beautiful ionic columns. Mm. So there's some pomp and circumstance as they announce the lethal chamber open. And then our narrator, who still has not been named, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you his name. Okay. Um, Hildred. Hildred. Hildred Castane. I would never have guessed Hildred. You can see why I'm having trouble remembering it. I've never heard that name before in my life. So our narrator, whose name is Hildred Castane, leaves the death chamber behind, crosses South Fifth Avenue, and goes into the shop of an armorer he knows, whose name is Hauberk, which is very 
creative. One of the joys of writing speculative fiction is going a little ape with the names. Uh-huh, sure. Um, but typically it's because you're in like an entire other invented culture, not... Sure. Well, a hauberk is a piece of armor. Right. Yeah. Not a not typically a name for a human being. No. Yeah. So he goes in to see Hauberk and his beautiful daughter Constance, who does not have a crush on Hildred, but does have a crush on Hildred's cousin Lewis. Oh. Now, how does Hildred feel about Constance? Hildred seems utterly disinterested in all women. Hmm. Also, Constance is the only woman we see. Okay. There is one note about Constance, though, which is, so he's talking about Hauberk and Constance, and it's a, he says, Hauberk had never interested me personally, nor did Constance, except for the fact of her being in love with Lewis. This did occupy my attention, and sometimes even kept me awake at night. Ooh. But I knew in my heart that all would come right, and that I should arrange their future, as I expected to arrange that of my kind doctor, John Archer. Ominous, ominous. Look out, Lewis. What? Look out, Constance. What do you mean? What do you mean, what do I mean? That seems perfectly innocent. He is going to mess them up. He's going to yeah. get a Hallbreck and he's going to... Don't you sit around talking about arranging people's futures? Constantly. I am a teacher. In a totally <laughs> non-ominous way? Yes. Yes. However, the biggest reason that he has at least a passing familiarity with the Hallbreck clan is because he has an extremely strange preoccupation with the sound of metalwork. Mm -hmm. So Hauberk is an actual armorer, primarily for the Metropolitan Museum, but he also works on collections of armor for private collectors, mm -hmm. you know, ri yeah, yeah. dumb rich people. Sure. Hildred has what he calls a strong fascination for the music of the tinkling hammer. Mm. He says, I would sit for hours, listening and listening, and when a stray sunbeam struck the inlaid steel, the sensation it gave me was almost too keen to endure. My eyes would become fixed, dilating with a pleasure that stretched every nerve almost to breaking, until some movement of the old armorer cut off the ray of sunlight. Then, still thrilling secretly, I leaned back and listened again to the sound of the polishing rag. Swish, swish, <laughs> rubbing rust from the rivets. So uh, Hildred is horny for hammers. It does seem that way, yes. Yes, okay. Horny for hammers. A little bit of a hammer hard on. I'll stop. It's uh, no. I mean, go for it. It's odd, and I, it's not the last time it's going to come up in this story. And I mean, you know, hey, can I get the polishing rag when you're finished? Am I right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I need to polish my sword. I need to polish. Got to polish right now because I'm horny for hammers. Uh-huh. Okay. This is a very strange story. Wrapping yourself in chainmail erotically. Uh-huh. It's a weird one. There's a reason I was like, oh, we're going to do one, maybe two episodes just on this one short story. <laughs> we'll see how long this goes. Yeah, yeah. So he pops in. He's chatting with Hauberk, but it's noted that anytime Hauberk goes back to hammering, he'll just like stop talking for a minute, like let him finish <laughs> and then pick up where they left off. And they discuss a suit of armor that Hauberk has recently completed, which is a big get. There was like a missing piece. He had to hunt it down. It was he had to go all the way to France and mm -hmm. he finally found it. It's a big deal. And this sort of sets something off in Hildred. And it says, for the first time, I took a personal interest in Hauberk. And he asks him 
if he was pursuing it essentially for money. And mm. Hauberk says, no, my pleasure in finding it was my reward. Okay. And Hildred asks him if he has no ambition to be rich. And Hauberk responds that his only ambition is to be the best armorer in the world. Sure. I don't know why, but Hildred is not a big fan of this. <laughs> Just doesn't find it realistic or doesn't find it measurable enough. I mean, I suppose one could, there's got to be like blacksmithing competitions out there, but... It seems to broadly set him off inside. He just doesn't, he doesn't love it. He's not a fan. It's not the future he's set for his armorer acquaintance. That's possibly it. Honestly, one of the little mysteries left in this story is I don't know why it is the armorer ambition that seems to start bothering Hildred, but it is. Is that like the inciting incident for Hildred's eventual whatever? What do you mean eventual whatever? He's not going to do anything. Nothing bad's going to (laughs) happen. I'm just extrapolating, you know, (laughs) thinking my narrative theory thoughts, thinking my whatever stupid triangle plot thing. No, this is a story where nothing happens and everyone's very happy at the end. Oh, sure. Okay, well, that mm-hmm. sounds sounds nice. There, yeah. there are parks, no foreigners. <laughs> sounds like a certain demographic's wet dream. Uh-huh. Yeah, gross. Okay. Okay. They chat for a little longer, mostly about Constance's crush on Lewis and Hildred, whose name I'm really struggling with, <laughs> sort of wraps up the conversation and says that he's headed upstairs to visit Mr. Wilde. Convenient that all of these people are in the same place. Uh Uh-huh. Which Hauberk does not seem to approve of because he says, are you going upstairs to see the lunatic again? And Hildred's response in his narration is, if Hauberk knew how I loathe that word lunatic, he would never use it in my presence. It rouses certain feelings within me which I do not care to explain. Okay. Yeah. And Constance says something kind of generically sweet about how hard it must be for Mr. Wilde to be, uh, quote, crippled and almost demented. Hmm. But Hauberk comes back and says that he thinks he's vicious. Then he starts hammering again, and Hildred has to wait until he finishes so that he can start thinking again, apparently. Hmm. Well, I mean, he is too busy being intoxicated by the ringing hammer sounds. Exactly. And then he says, no, he is not vicious, nor is he in the least demented. His mind is a wonder chamber from which he can extract treasures that you and I would give years of our life to acquire. Mm. And he goes on. He knows history as no one else could know it. Nothing, however trivial, escapes his search. And his memory is so absolute, so precise in details, that were it known in New York that such a man existed, the people could not honor him enough. Okay. Hauberk is unimpressed, and Hildred comes back and says, essentially, would you be more impressed if I told you that this famous piece that is missing from this famous set of armor could be found at this address, tumbled in with a bunch of old theatrical props? And Hauberk goes very quiet and essentially says, how did you know that that piece was even missing from that suit of armor? And Hildred's like, Mr. Wilde told me. He just happened to mention it in passing the other day. And this is a very strange, this is another one of those strange asides that I can't quite decide what to do with. Uh They go back and forth, essentially saying, one of them saying this is nonsense, one of them saying, I promise you it's true. And then Hildred says, is this nonsense too? I asked pleasantly. Is it nonsense when Mr. Wilde continually speaks of you as the Marquis of Avonshire? The who of the what now? Mm Mm-hmm. 
That is impossible, Hallberg observed. Mr. Wilde may know a great many things. About armor, for instance, and the princes emblazoned, the name of the suit of armor. Mm -hmm. I interposed, smiling. Yes, he continued slowly. About armor also, maybe. But he is wrong in regard to the Marquis of Avonshire, who, as you know, killed his wife's traducer years ago and went to Australia, where he did not long survive his wife. Okay. This gets Constance very upset. Sure. And that's the end of the scene. Okay, essentially. so, so <clears throat> secret murderer identity, potentially. Potentially. Okay. I'm picking up what they're putting down, kind of. This is our, our first introduction to Mr. Wilde. And then we meet Mr. Wilde properly. Excellent. Hildred goes upstairs, and I'm just going to have to read you a, a decent chunk of description because... Yeah, bring it on. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Why don't you go ahead and introduce us to uh, Mr. Wilde? Mr. Wilde. Half a dozen new scratches covered his nose and cheeks, and the silver wires which supported his artificial ears had become displaced. I thought I had never seen him so hideously fascinating. He had no ears. The artificial ones, which now stood out at an angle from the fine wire, were his one weakness. They were made of wax and painted a shell pink, but the rest of his face was yellow. He might better have reveled in the luxury of some artificial fingers for his left hand, which was absolutely fingerless, but it seemed to cause him no inconvenience, and he was satisfied with his wax ears. He was very small, scarcely higher than a child of ten, but his arms were magnificently developed and his thighs as thick as any athlete's. Still, the most remarkable thing about Mr. Wilde was that a man of his marvelous intelligence and knowledge should have such a head. It was flat and pointed, like the heads of many of those unfortunate whom people imprison in asylums for the weak-minded. Many called him insane, but I knew him to be as sane as I was. I do not deny that he was eccentric. The mania he had for keeping that cat and teasing her until she flew at his face like a demon was certainly eccentric. I could never understand why he kept the creature, nor what pleasure he found in shutting himself up in his room with this surly, vicious beast. I remember once, glancing up from the manuscript I was studying by the light of some tallow dips, and seeing Mr. Wilde squatting motionless on his high chair, his eyes fairly blazing with excitement, while the cat, which had risen from her place before the stove, came creeping across the floor right at him. Before I could move, she flattened her belly to the ground, crouched, trembled, and sprang into his face. Howling and foaming, they rolled over and over on the floor, scratching and clawing until the cat screamed and fled under the cabinet, and Mr. Wilde turned over on his back, his limbs contracting and curling up like the legs of a dying spider. He was eccentric. Well, then. <laughs> well, then, indeed. So that is Mr. Wilde. Sure who is also a repairer of reputations. And what does that mean? He is taking pay in order to fix people's reputations. And he's got, he when Hildred arrives, mm -hmm. he starts reading out of his ledger. And as an example, Henry B. Matthews, bookkeeper with Wysett, Wysett and Company, dealers in church ornaments, called April 3rd, reputation damaged on the racetrack, known as a welcher, Reputation to be repaired by August 1st. Retainer, $5. Whoa. And he goes through several. A woman who was, I think, cheating on her husband. A minister who was embezzling money from a church. You know, the usual. 
So do we get to learn how Mr. Wilde accomplishes restoring these reputations? He says that he has hundreds of men, 500 men in his employ, Mm. who, quote, are poorly paid, but who pursue the work with an enthusiasm which possibly may be born of fear. These men enter every shade and grade of society. Some are even pillars of the most exclusive social temples. Others are the prop and pride of the financial world. Mm. Still others hold undisputed sway among the fancy and the talent. I choose them at my leisure from those who reply to my advertisements. It is easy enough. They are all cowards. Okay. I still have questions, and I can't stop thinking about Humpty Dumpty (laughs) and all the king's men. You know, like if everyone's reputation takes a tumble off that wall. Mm -hmm. You know, Mr. Wilde's men put it back together through some sort of nefarious something or other. Bribery? It seems to be some kind of highly elaborate combination of bribery and blackmail. Mm. That's never fully explained. Sure. But it is pointed out. So while they're talking, somebody knocks on the door and Mr. Wilde says, through the door, shouts through the door, this isn't a good time, go away. And the other person starts to be like, but, and he's like, no, just leave. And Hildred's like, mm-hmm. oh, who was that? And he, it's uh, Arnold Stalet, owner and editor-in-chief of the Great New York Daily. Oh. Mr. Wilde has a lot of people, especially the media, mm. in his pocket. Okay. Sure. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. All right. But Hildred is there primarily because he wants to reread and discuss with Mr. Wilde a manuscript entitled The Imperial Dynasty of America, which explains in great detail how, beginning with Carcosa, the Hyades, Haster, and Aldebaran, which are names and place names from the play The King in Yellow, Mm -hmm. you can trace forward to Castain, Louis de Calvados, born December 19th, 1877, who is the rightful emperor of... The United States. So this is some Illuminati sh- Well. <laughs> yeah, adjacent. You'll see. Uh, well, okay. you know. Okay. Suffice to say, there's a manuscript. Sure. And the manuscript says that Hildred's cousin Lewis mm-hmm. is the rightful king of the United States. Sure. But what's really important is that Hildred thinks that he should be the king of the United States. Ah. With what he refers to as his legitimate ambition oh there's the ambition that was mentioned earlier okay Mm -hmm. okay and mr wilde is apparently going to be some kind of um i'm thinking of worm tongue from the lord of the rings yeah the slimy Mm. advisor who helps you claw your way into power yeah yeah the dick cheney of it all the dick cheney of it all yeah and so they're plotting they're they have gotten together to plot got it and mr wilde is assuring him that it's time for him to have a discussion with his cousin, Lewis. And he says, we are now in communication with 10,000 men. We can count on 100,000 within the first 28 hours. And in 48 hours, the state will rise en masse. The country follows the state and the portion that will not, I mean, California and the Northwest, (laughs) might better never have been inhabited. I shall not send them the yellow sign. Oh my gosh. Okay, so like a coup is building. The two of them are planning mm-hmm. Hildred's ascent to become king. To become king of the United States. And Hildred is quite sane. Definitely. As he continues to remind us. So sane. It's always a good sign if people remind you that yes. they're sane. 
Yes. Yes. So as they're scheming, we see Lewis go by with his regiment. And if there's one thing Hildred loves, maybe not quite as much as the sound of hammers on metal, mm-hmm. it's describing men in uniform in ways that are definitely not at all lingering. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> Can we hear one? Yes. Okay, good. It was my cousin's regiment. Ooh. They were a fine lot of fellows in their pale blue, tight-fitting jackets, mm. jaunty busbies, and white riding breeches with the double yellow stripe, into which their limbs seemed molded. Ooh. The troopers, who rode with the beautiful English seat, looked brown as berries from their bloodless campaign among the farms of Westchester, and the music of their sabers against the stirrups, and the jingle of spurs and carbines was delightful to me. Gonna need that polishing rag again. I saw Lewis riding with his squadron. He was as handsome an officer as I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. But not handsome enough to be king. Apparently Even not. Even if the manuscript says that he should be. And this is not the, the yellow king is different than this manuscript. Correct. That manuscript is the Imperial Dynasty of America. Got That's right. That's right. Which appears to be handwritten. Oh. It's like a bundle of papers. Okay. And notes. Yeah. It is implied but never outright stated that Mr. Wilde maybe put this together? Unclear. Okay. So, we finish admiring his cousin. He goes home, has lunch, removes a crown that he's got hidden in a safe so that he could admire himself in it for a while. Okay. You can tell it's a little bit futuristic because he refers to it as a time safe and it has some kind of alarm that goes off while it's like it takes three minutes to open and then an alarm goes off when it's been open for a while and I don't think they had that technology in the 1890s. Mm -hmm. The most important thing is it's a beautiful crown. Gold, diamonds, the whole nine. Sure. He likes to sit around in his room putting it on, Mm -hmm. admiring himself. Ooh, quick xenophobic note. Great. In Washington Square Park, which is where his rooms face, children are playing around the statue of Peter Stuyvesant, which in 1897 replaced the monstrosity supposed to represent Garibaldi. Okay. It's very important. <laughs> yeah. Lots of, a lot of statue replacement going on here. Mm-hmm. He's hanging out. He watches a young man go into the lethal chamber. He does not come out again, mm-hmm. unsurprisingly. And then he actually properly runs into his cousin. They talk about Constance. Mm -hmm. They invite Constance and her father to go on a walk. Okay. And as Lewis and Constance are flirting with each other, Hauberk pulls Hildred aside and says that he found the piece of armor. Oh. And it was exactly where Mr. Wilde said it was. Mm Mm-hmm. He tries to essentially, um, you know, thank you. This is worth a lot of money. I'll make sure that Mr. Wilde gets paid and there are going to, you know, people are going to write about this discovery. I'll make sure he gets the credit. And Hildred says, he doesn't want it. He refuses it. I answered angrily. What do you know about Mr. Wilde? He doesn't need the money. He is rich or will be richer than any living man except myself. What will we care for money then? What will we care? He and I when, when, when what? demanded Hauberk, astonished. You will see, I replied, on my guard again. He looked at me narrowly, much as Dr. Archer used to, and I knew he thought I was mentally unsound. Perhaps it was fortunate for him that he did not use the word lunatic just then. Spilling the beans there, Hildred. 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 It's Mildred with an H. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There it is. It's the he Mildred. Hildred. Right. It's the himbo of Mildreds. Yeah. (laughs) Complete with crowns and polishing rags. 
So he walks it back a little and says, I do not care to explain just yet what I have on hand, but it is an investment which will pay more than mere gold, silver, and precious stones. It will secure the happiness and prosperity of a continent. Yes, a hemisphere. Oh. <laughs> and Hauberk does this like, okay, buddy. Didn't Hildred just talk about how, in his view, at least, everything's prosperous already? But couldn't it be better I, if Hildred was the king of it? Sure. <laughs> Knock yourself out, bud. Hauberk, very gently, and it says, I could have throttled him for taking that tone, says, why don't you give up your books and studies, Mr. Castain, and take a tramp among the mountains somewhere or other? You used to be fond of fishing. <laughs> You used to be fond of everything. Athletics, yachting, shooting, riding. And Hildred is not having it. He is mm -hmm. not, not impressed. That was his old, lazy, layabout self. Yes. That was the howl to his King Henry. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 He's on to more serious things now. Sure. Which Hauberk just kind of keeps doing the, oh, okay, pal, good stuff. And Constance and Lewis are... Canoodling. They are canoodling. Yeah. And this I, is I what... I knew it. I, I just knew it. And this is what convinces Hildred that it's time for him to make moves regarding Lewis. Mm-hmm. So Hildred is having a great time and not coming apart at the seams at all. Mm-hmm. He's obsessing over little details from the play. He's hanging out increasingly just alone in his study with the, the crown yeah. on. I remembered Camilla's agonized scream and the awful words echoing through the dim streets of Carcosa. They were the last lines in the first act, and I dared not think of what followed. For those poisoned words had dropped slowly into my heart, as death sweat drops upon a bedsheet and is absorbed. Jesus. Yeah. And he's hanging out in his crown when his cousin startles the shit out of him and he almost stabs him. Mm. Which is <laughs> great. And he's like, what are you wearing on your head? Uh-huh. Why do you have a costume crown? Are you going to a party? Are you in a play? It says, I did not answer, but took the circlet from his hands, and placing it in the safe shut the massive steel door. The alarm ceased its infernal din at once. He watched me curiously, but did not seem to notice the sudden ceasing of the alarm. He did, however, speak of the safe as a biscuit box. Ah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was glad he thought the crown was made of brass and paste, yet I didn't like him any the better for thinking so. So if we weren't sure about it, our unreliable narrator now, we are get, gathering more evidence. I don't know what you're talking about. Safe is definitely not a biscuit box. Sure isn't. We get a note about how jaunty and good Lewis looks in his uniform. Mm -hmm. As another little note about Hildred's apparent lack of manliness, Lewis asks for a drink. He gives him some brandy. Lewis is like, this is terrible brandy. And Hildred's response is, well, it's good enough for my needs. I just use it to rub my chest. Ah. And Lewis is like, <laughs> <laughs> Lewis has clearly come, not from Hildred's perspective, but you can see between the lines of the narration that Lewis has come in part to be like, you okay? Yeah, ch checking on cousin. Buddy, yeah. like, and what he says is, it's four years now that you've shut yourself up here like an owl, never going anywhere, never taking any healthy exercise, never doing a damn thing but poring over those books up there on the mantelpiece. He glanced along the row of shelves. Napoleon, Napoleon, Napoleon! For heaven's sake, have you nothing but Napoleons there? 
I wish they were bound in gold, I said. But wait, yes, there is another book, The King in Yellow. Ooh. I mean, once again, listeners, this just uh, another reminder about the dangers of book learning. (laughs) And he says, have you never read it? I? No, thank God. I don't want to be driven crazy. (laughs) 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 Which offends Hildred. Sure. And Lewis tries to take it back and says, oh, I don't know. I only remember the excitement it created and the denunciations from pulpit and press. It is a cursed text. It is a cursed text. But Hildred says it's a book of great truths. Sure. And Lewis responds, truths which send men frantic and blast their lives. I don't care if the thing is, as they say, a very supreme essence of art. It's a crime to have written it. (laughs) But what's most important is that Lewis is also there to tell Hildred Mm -hmm. that he and Constance are to be married. Oh, shit. This is... This is bad news. A problem. Because now, if Lewis is king to be king of the United States, well, now he's got someone who can start pumping out those heirs. That is exactly Hildred's line of thinking. I I figured. And yeah. so it is time for the plan to begin. It's got to happen now. It's, it's going. Yep. So Hildred, before Lewis leaves, extracts a promise to meet him at midnight to talk to him about something important. Mm-hmm. Lewis, because he is over the moon about being engaged to Constance and they're going to get married like the next day, is like anything for you, cuz. Okay. Sure. Sure. He sees Lewis off. He runs to Mr. Wilde. Mr. Wilde has procured a man who has also been driven mad by the king in yellow. Yes. They have blackmailed him. Okay. He was supposed to get his reputation repaired, but But then he turned around and did more reputation ruining. And it's gently implied that this makes Mr. Wilde angry. Unclear. Okay. This man is going to go murder Hauberk and Constance. All right. With a knife. Sure. Hildred, as his first act signs an actual execution warrant. Jesus. With a seal and everything. (laughs) Uh uh Hildred Rex. King. It's time. They are releasing the yellow sign. All right. The coup is happening. Here we go. They set everything up. Mm -hmm. They give Mr. Vance a knife. They send him off to go murder poor Constance and Hauberk. Yeah. And Hildred goes to confront Lewis. Mm -hmm. He meets him in the park. He hands him the manuscript and says... (laughs) I need you to read this whole thing without asking me any questions. As someone who assigns reading to people for a living, that always goes so well. And it's... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I will give Robert Chambers credit. This is such a good description of the intense awkwardness of watching someone read something important. Uh Even though Hildred doesn't seem to find it as awkward as I do on Hildred's behalf. Uh Uh-huh. He began to read, raising his eyebrows with a puzzled, whimsical air, which made me tremble with suppressed anger. As he advanced, his eyebrows contracted, and his lips seemed to form the word rubbish. Then he looked slightly bored, but apparently for my sake read, with an attempt at interest, which presently ceased to be an effort. He started when in the closely written pages he came to his own name, and when he came to mine he lowered the paper and looked sharply at me for a moment. But he kept his word and resumed his reading, and I lit the half-formed question die on his lips unanswered. When he came to the end and read the signature of Mr. Wilde, he folded the paper carefully and returned it to me. Then he makes him read a bunch of notes. Mm-hmm. In addition, I guess the sources. Unclear. <laughs> and it says, Then I unfolded a scroll marked with the yellow sign. He saw the sign, but he did not seem to recognize it, 
and I called his attention to it somewhat sharply. Well, he said, I see it. What is it? It's the yellow sign, I said angrily. So he saw the sign Lewis did, but it didn't open up his eyes. <laughs> oh, that's it, is it? Said Lewis, in that flattering voice which Dr. Archer used to employ with me, and probably would have employed again had I not settled his affair for him. What? Wait, uh, so is he just off the page? He settled the affair so, of, of Dr. Archer? Just a little slippy, stabby, poisony, whatever? Yes. Okay. So he explains this to Lewis immediately following. Oh, okay, okay. Lewis is doing, once again, the, okay, buddy. Sh- sure. Uh-huh. So that's the yellow sign, huh? <laughs> and Hildred says... Dr. Archer, having by some means become possessed of the secret of the imperial succession, attempted to deprive me of my right, alleging that because of a fall from my horse four years ago, I had become mentally deficient. He presumed to place me under restraint in his own house in hopes of either driving me insane or poisoning me. I have not forgotten it. I visited him last night, and the interview was final. Oh, okay. Lewis is deeply concerned. Sure. And Hildred concludes by saying, you must renounce the crown to me. Do you hear to me? So he starts rambling mm-hmm. about like lines of succession and how he's not allowed to get married. And finally, Hildred explains how he murdered Dr. Archer in his own cellar. And as he's screaming, I shall be king. Who are you to keep me from empire over all the habitable earth? I was born the cousin of a king, but I shall be the king. He sees poor Vance, the madman, who he sent to murder mm-hmm. Hauberk and, and Constance, Constance, run past them into the suicide chamber. Oh, I'd completely forgotten about the suicide chamber. There it is. We found it. <laughs> okay. Check off suicide chamber. Oh, yeah. Circled all the way oh, back around. Oh, my goodness. And he tries to grandly dismiss Lewis because he's it's happened. Mm-hmm. He's ready. Yep. Clearly, Constance and... Hauberk are dead, Mm -hmm. and he takes off running. Lewis, hot behind him. He is headed for Mr. Wilde's rooms. Mm -hmm. Lewis is headed for Constance. Yep. And we'll read the thrilling conclusion. Good. Okay. Mr. Wilde's door was open, and I entered, crying, It is done. It is done. Let the nations rise and look upon their king. But I could not find Mr. Wilde, so I went to the cabinet and took the splendid diadem from its case. Then I drew on the white silk robe, embroidered with the yellow sign, and placed the crown upon my head. At last I was king, king by my right in Haster, king because I knew the mystery of the Hyades, and my mind had sounded the depths of the Lake of Holly. I was king. The first gray pencilings of dawn would raise a tempest which would shake two hemispheres. Then, as I stood, my every nerve pitched to the highest tension, faint with the joy and splendor of my thought. Without, in the dark passage, a man groaned. I seized the tallow dip and sprang to the door. The cat passed me like a demon, and the tallow dip went out. But my long knife flew swifter than she, and I heard her screech, and I knew that my knife had found her. For a moment, I listened to her tumbling and thumping about in the darkness, and when her frenzy ceased, I lighted a lamp and raised it over my head. Mr. Wilde lay on the floor with his throat torn open. At first, I thought he was dead. But as I looked, a green sparkle came into his sunken eyes. His mutilated hand trembled, and then a spasm stretched his mouth from ear to ear. 
For a moment, my terror and despair gave place to hope. But as I bent over him, his eyeballs rolled clean around in his head, and he died. Then, while I stood, transfixed with rage and despair, seeing my crown, my empire, every hope and every ambition, my very life, lying prostrate there with the dead master, they came, seized me from behind, and bound me until my veins stood out like cords, and my voice failed with the paroxysms of my frenzied screams. But still I raged, bleeding and infuriated among them, and more than one policeman felt my sharp teeth. Then, when I could no longer move, they came nearer. I saw old Hauberk, and behind him my cousin Lewis's ghastly face, and farther away, in the corner, a woman, Constance, weeping softly. Ah, I see it now, I shrieked. You have seized the throne and the empire. Woe, woe to you who are crowned with the crown of the king in yellow. Editor's note. Mr. Castaigne died yesterday in the Asylum for Criminal Insane. Okay. The end. The end. Whew. There is so much happening in this story. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I always think about, because I both read and write a lot of speculative fiction, is how are those speculative elements, which in this case would be the sort of broader world building, you know, like geopolitical stuff and the like suicide chamber in particular, like how are those driving or impacting like the characters in their sort of day to day? Uh, and I got to say, I'm a little bit baffled. Like, we do sort of have the Chekhov's suicide chamber return, but it doesn't actually play a significant role in the plot. But then there is all this other, I mean, the the royalty thing, the empire thing. Like, those things seem to, like, at least fit thematically to some of that other stuff. And to be clear, America in in this alternate universe does not have a king. Right. Yeah, it's still <laughs> maybe more of a military apparatus even than we have now. But still, like, there was a president and yes. a governor of New York and a mayor, recognizable, democratic-ish stuff. Yes. The crown that Hildred is attempting to murder people over is purely imaginary. Yeah, I mean, based on this sort of delusional idea. Yes. Right, it reminds me a little bit of there was that QAnon-adjacent conspiracy after mm -hmm. the 2020 election where, and I don't remember the, the exact specifics of it, but like there was some different version of the United States that got shifted sometime in the distant past. And there's been every president since then has actually been the president of a corporation. <laughs> it was just like completely bad. Bananas. Insane. And so like- Anyway, so it kind of gave me some of those vibes of yeah. like a sort of invented alternate reality based on theoretical sources that gives you or whoever the power to claim this sort of authority, even if that's just complete fabrication. Yeah. yeah. Hildred, Hildred and Mr. Wilde have big conspiracy theory that got way too real vibes. Yeah. But then... The world Chambers has built is like a eugenicist, white supremacist wet dream. Yeah. And from the confines of the story, I don't think Chambers thinks that's a problem. There doesn't appear to be, other than the fact that our narrator is, right, like clearly insane and that everything is filtered through that narrator. And so like, okay, so if we're judging those opening descriptions as coming from the narrator's consciousness. like, But it doesn't feel like we're satirizing that stuff. It's just like, 
that's just the way things are. And it seems like a lot of sort of a sympathetic view to, well, maybe wouldn't it be nice if there was, you know, all this quote unquote prosperity because of the military dictatorship and the removal of these sort of of the foreigners undesirables right yeah all that kind of stuff so it didn't read like a satire it didn't sound like a satire even with that unreliable narrator maybe complicating that a smidge it's not enough for me to to assume that the author is meaning for us to take this whole society as a dystopic negative kind of thing Yeah. yeah I have seen one person make the argument that essentially if Robert Chambers wanted us to think that this was a good world, why would suicide chambers be necessary? But I disagree with that line of argument in part because from a eugenicist perspective, suicide chambers are great because from a eugenicist perspective... You can get rid of all of the people of color and you can get rid of the people who don't share your religion. But what do you do with the mentally ill? Mm-hmm. They're a real problem. Right. Wouldn't it be nice if they could just kill themselves? Right. Just have, oh, oh, you're despairing or you're so angry about the way things are here. Well, you know, we'll just funnel you into this little death area. Yeah. There's a section from the the little speech that he gives. It says, The laws prohibiting suicide and providing punishment for any attempt at self-destruction have been repealed. The government has seen fit to acknowledge the right of man to end an existence which may have become intolerable to him through physical suffering or mental despair. It is believed that the community will be benefited by the removal of such people from their midst. Mm-hmm. So it's not about empathy towards the people actually suffering. It's about the broader society's ability to just sort of not have to not have to think about it and not have to care for them and all that stuff yeah yeah it's a deeply conservative Mm -hmm. world that i think hildred and the king in yellow are meant to be disturbing stains upon Mm -hmm. right yeah the problem in the story if we're going to look at it from like or at least imagine from the author's perspective, the problem is not the culture. The problem is Hildred. Yes. And most importantly, the problem is Mr. Wild. Sure. Who appears to be corrupting people. Mm-hmm. We don't know how Hildred and Mr. Wild found each other. Mm-hmm. But we know that Mr. Wilde had that other poor man who had been driven mad by the king in yellow, mm-hmm. who even says something about how he was, he's raving in panic. Yeah. And he, what he says essentially is that he had been in an asylum, he was better, and he got out, and then someone gave the king in yellow back to him, and now he's mad all over again. Yeah. So this book is evil. Well, and the way Mr. Wilde is described, that part that I read... Right, he's described as sort of comically grotesque. Yes, the wax ears and the smallness, and like it's sort of making fun of Mr. Wilde's physical mm-hmm. self in addition to his potential insanity. Now, it's not made super overt in this story, but it is made super overt in a couple of the following stories. The book, The King in Yellow, is physically yellow. The cover of it, it's bound in yellow snakeskin. Mm-hmm. Now, if I say. Mr. Wild and Yellow Book to you. Does that ring any bells? Huh. 
I mean, when I hear Mr. Wilde, I think of our friend Oscar. And you said this was written in 1895? It was published in 1895. Published in 1895. So that's right around Oscar Wilde's, the end of his life, right? 1895 was the year that Oscar Wilde went to trial. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Wow. And I, I know Victoriana and things is not really your wheelhouse. But... I've, I've read quite a bit of Wilde, but I, I must admit I'm missing the yellow okay. uh, reference. So A of all, the color yellow in sort of aesthetes and decadence like mm-hmm. that, like Oscar Wilde and Aubrey Beardsley and their, their whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yellow is a big deal color okay. for transgression and sensuality. And when Oscar Wilde staged Salome for the first time in London, mm-hmm. before it was almost immediately banned, yeah. he had Salome herself and the stage decked out in yellow, in part as a nod to Jewishness, mm-hmm. which was also a thing people did not love. Right. In fact, I found there's a very good... An edition of The King in Yellow came out a couple of years ago that I unfortunately did not find out about until I had already bought this one, and I'm sorry. But in the review of that edition from Mm -hmm. 2019, Paul Sinjin McIntosh in the LA Review of Books is writing about Chambers and Oscar Wilde, and it says, Oscar Wilde's Salome was first published in French in 1893 after being banned from performance in London in 1892. For that production, Wilde had Sarah Bernhardt dressed in yellow and decorated the stage in yellow because of the traditional yellow badge for Jews in medieval Europe. Mm -hmm. One detail which probably impressed itself on Chambers, who was himself a noted anti-Semite. Is Chambers British? Chambers is American. Okay, I was guessing he was American just based on the setting. So this book or this story does seem, now that I, I know a little bit of this background, as a kind of conservative response to the putative degeneracy of like Wilde and his contemporaries. I think so. Yeah. So Robert Chambers was born in 1865, mm-hmm. grew up in New York, and then in 1886 moved to Paris to study art. He was a painter originally. Mm-hmm. And he was in Paris from 1886 to 1893. When he moved back to New York Mm -hmm. and then for reasons that everyone just so there's there's not a ton of biographical information on him. I don't think he left a ton of stuff behind. And also no one has done like a really thorough scholarly biography Mm -hmm. again with apologies to this annotated edition done by Kenneth Height that I think has much more information in it, but I don't have enough money to buy books twice. There's not a ton of scholarly stuff out there on Chambers. And one of the things that is very funny to me is the stuff that you do find tends to be like, no one knows why he came back from Paris and stopped painting and started writing instead. And I'm like, I have a hunch. (laughs) (laughs) People probably told him he was bad at it. Uh Uh-huh. He went on to have a career as an illustrator, and he was apparently like an American impressionist. Mm -hmm. What I see most said most often is that he was competent. Sure. But he moved back to the United States. Mm -hmm. He pivoted to writing. And this is one of the first things he wrote. Yeah. And I think that the whole collection, but most especially this story, is a reaction to his perception that Europe especially and maybe if we're not careful, America mm-hmm. is sliding into horrifying queer degeneracy. That's right. 
Yep. Because the yellow book is a reference to a book called A Rebours. <laughs> that's, a, that's a French word, everyone. A, a Rebours by Wiesmont. Okay. Sometimes translated as either against nature or against the grain. Okay. And it's like one of the big seminal works of decadent literature. Oscar Wilde loved it. Everyone was obsessed with it. And very notably, when it was published, mm-hmm. it was yellow. Oh, okay. So we've got a character in this story named Mr. Wilde, yep. who is ruining people's lives with his yellow book. Yeah, that is a reasonably cogent interpretation, it seems like. It's also super subtle. Yep, super subtle. <laughs> the most subtle. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting. Yeah, I had no, I had no idea. I mean, again, I, I hadn't even heard of this f- book. So, you know, and it does make that sort of world building stuff make much more sense that like here's part of the point of it is like this is the way a quote unquote good society would look and function. And here's these degenerates. Very much so. Yeah. Okay. And these are the people like what's frightening about the story is Hildred. Mm hmm. What's so scary about it is being put in Hildred's head. And it is an incredibly well-done example of an unreliable narrator. I will give it Mm -hmm. that credit. Yeah. But you are not, at the end, meant to be particularly sympathetic to Hildred. Right. He's a problem. Yep. I also think it's very important. And again, this was pointed out in a couple of sources, including the same article in the LA Review of Books, that... When Chambers was living in Paris, syphilis was really bad, mm-hmm. like really bad yeah. and horrifying. Not as much of a big deal in the United States at the time, to my understanding. But when you think about the way that Mr. Wilde, the character, is characterized, he's got missing ears, he's mm-hmm. missing all of the fingers on one of his hands. That's one of the things that syphilis causes is parts of your body will start to fall off, mm-hmm. especially in the late stages. And looking at Hildred... Syphilis eventually reaches the brain and causes hallucinations and paranoia and a total, you know, you lose touch with reality. And so I just think it's this whole sort of mishmash of all of these frightening, degenerate things Mm -hmm. that Chambers thought of Europe. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Up to and including what is essentially a glancing reference to the West Cure. Yeah. Which, are you familiar with the West Cure? The West Cure, no. Okay. The Rest Cure, sure. So the Rest Cure is for ladies. Yep. The West Cure is the analog for men. Oh. Where they shipped them into cowboy country. Of course. And sent them off to go camping and horse riding and Mm -hmm. hunting and fishing with a bunch of other men and no women around. And Mm -hmm. it was a very popular way to cure effeminacy. Sure. Teddy Roosevelt was sent on the West Cure, Mm -hmm. and that's what made him so... Rugged. Rugged, Uh because apparently as a younger man, he was extremely effeminate. Mm -hmm. Through the story, as Hildred gets worse and worse, you have two different characters essentially step in to say, hey, buddy, have you considered going hunting? Athletics. (laughs) Or camping or Uh any... Go outside. He used to like fish, which, to be fair is often reasonably good advice, go outside, but not this sort of creepy gender-coded 
this is how we can tell that Hildred is becoming unnatural, right? He's slipping further and further away from these beautiful, handsome, militarized young men who do sports outdoors Mm -hmm. and look great doing it while they fight off the Germans. Mm -hmm. And Hildred is effeminate and indoors and having a very suspicious relationship with Mr. Wilde, who in turn is having a very suspicious relationship with his cat. Mm -hmm. I did do some very quick Googling on a hunch. Dear listeners, I want to be clear that this was Googling because I do not have time to exhaustively research everything. However, by the 1890s, there was a pretty common slang term, gay cat, Okay, that was for young drifters and itinerants who would distribute sexual favors mm-hmm. to sometimes women but most frequently older men mm-hmm. i can't say for sure that it is slang that chambers would have been familiar with sure but it seems likely enough mm-hmm. and this whole thing with mr wild and his cat mm-hmm. i would be prepared to argue in writing is a metaphor for a gay relationship sure and there is sort of the and the way hildred looks his interest in an almost sexual interest, it seems like, in the like blacksmithing and the sounds of it, which would be like being attracted to something unnatural and almost machine-like. And there's also sort of the the way the, the soldiers are described, right? And if there's some like subtext there that's meant to make Hildred seem queer in a negative way. Well, and I think Hildred is very... He's very backward looking and romantic. His obsession with Napoleon, Mm -hmm. his obsession with suits of armor. When, From the perspective of the story, it's 1920. It's the future. That's right. We're modern. We're streamlined. We don't, we have warships. We don't need suits of armor. That's old fashioned. Play acting. Monarchy stuff. Yeah. We left all that old fashioned monarchy stuff behind in France with those degenerates. That's right. Well, not France quite so much. England. France. Six, six to one. France has a pretty good track record of murdering monarchs. That's true. And I say, God bless them. <laughs> but it's there's so much happening in this story, and I have all of these little research threads that go in all of these different directions. I read a very good thesis by Lucas C. Townsend. If you're out there, I hope you're enjoying your MA from Florida Atlantic University. I really enjoyed your master's thesis, which was titled... Degenerative Decadence and Regenerative Militarism in the Invasion Narratives of Robert W. Chambers and Erskine Childers. Oh. And what Townsend argues, I think quite aptly, is that Chambers is positioning this story as a warning to America of what it needs to become Mm -hmm. in the face of what he perceives to be Problems Now, Townsend is not focusing anywhere near as heavily on the sexuality aspect of it. I think the queerness is very important and definitely worth interrogating, especially because Chambers went to art school in Paris. Mm-hmm. And if he didn't get his grabbed by a classmate, I would be shocked, quite frankly, because he was at an art school in Paris in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. And it was a horny time. Yeah. But what Townsend is primarily focused on is the idea that... European societies were degenerating. And so he ropes in the work of Max Nordau. Are you familiar with? Mm-mm, no, don't know no Nordau. So Nordau is a complicated figure. Okay. And I don't want to get into it too much. There's, there's a lot going on with Nordau. He wrote a book called Degeneration, which was arguing that the societies of Europe were 
degenerating, Mm -hmm. mostly because they were getting caught up in exactly the kind of decadent, sinful lifestyles that Oscar Wilde represented. Sure. And the only thing that could redeem or save these societies was a return to rugged, all-around, militaristic... I'm quoting Townsend in their thesis. As a doctor, Nordau takes it upon himself to diagnose the symptoms of, and potentially cure, the morally destructive qualities of disease he observed in the entire decadent movement. Nordau's primary concern was of an imminent Volkerdammerung, or dusk of the nations, that he believed was on the horizon, equating the end of Western civilization's values with the end of the reign of the Norse gods. In Degeneration, Nordau finds it very important to critique and expose the decadent elements of aesthetic creation as, quote, books and works of art exercise a powerful suggestion on the masses. It is from these productions that an age derives its ideals of morality and beauty. If they are absurd and antisocial, they exert a disturbing and corrupting influence on the views of a whole generation. Hmm. Now, that's... That was a subquote of Nordau. Right. Returning to Townsend. To Nordau, art is as foundational to civilization as political ideology. Thus, the corrupting influences of French decadent art and Victorian sensation fiction have the potential to seriously pollute gene pools throughout generations, resulting in the eventual Darwinian extinction of weak, effete people, be they British, French, German, or American, by a stronger, more fit nation. Ah, okay. Again. This story fits right into that, it seems like. So Nordau's Degeneration came out in 1892. Okay. I wound up having to make a timeline. (laughs) Right. It feels like this is an encapsulation of everything that more conservative people thought was going wrong with the whole world at the same time. The rise of Prussian militarism. We're Mm -hmm. in the immediate aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War. Paris is still being rebuilt and... In very short order, 1884, Against Nature is published. 1886, Robert Chambers moves to Paris. Mm -hmm. 1890, The Picture of Dorian Gray is published. Oh, love that book. 1892, Nordau's Degeneration is published. Also 1892, Oscar Wilde's Salome debuts and is banned. Mm -hmm. 1893, it's published in France. Mm -hmm. 1894, is The Dreyfus Affair? Mm Mm-hmm. Big deal in anti-Semitic history. Yep. 1895, Oscar Wilde goes to trial and The King in Yellow is published. Yeah. So this is percolating in within the cultures. There's conflict around these kinds of ideas, right? What does decadence mean? What, you know, what is the morality around these kinds of things? And there's there's the pushback and there's, you know, the support. Yeah. And it's the very real fear on the behalf of a bunch of frightened, small-minded, conservative people that the world is about to end Mm -hmm. and that the world is about to devolve into armed conflict between almost all of the major nations. One of those things did actually happen pretty soon after. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things, and I didn't bring it up at the time, but right away, like in the opening of that story and, and the talking about how the war between the United States and Germany is over in 1920. This was published in 1895. Yeah. Like, it got the general sense of that conflict of World War One, like, not too far off the mark in terms of time, which is pretty bizarre. It's not as bizarre as you would think. 
honestly. So a, a thing that we forget contemporarily mm-hmm. is that especially because Prussia was so extremely militaristic and because the young man who inherited Prussia was a f- moron. And for more of that, there's a very good Behind the Bastards okay. uh, episode. But essentially, the whole world saw World War One coming for decades and a lot of people were trying very hard to make sure it didn't happen Mm -hmm. but to a lot of people it was really just a matter of when not if yeah and so one of the preoccupations of writers like nordau and of people like chambers and of kind of conservatives and people who are upset about the decadence and the aesthetes and the idea that we're crumbling into a weak effeminate queer society is that we will lack the militarism to protect ourselves as, you know, the ups- upstanding moral Western nations, mm-hmm. when inevitably either, as Chambers predicts, Europe descends into left-wing anarchy, or, as actually happens, World War One breaks out for no good f-ing reason, and then millions and millions of people die. Yeah. It's a big concern Mm -hmm. and definitely doesn't feel familiar at all. No, no, no. Once again, I'm so glad that we could work through a piece of literature that feels just distant and alienated from our experiences here in 2024. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I can't think of anything going on that has to do with militarization or conspiracy theories or anti-Semitism or what have you. The urge to deport unwanted mm-hmm. parts of society. Yep. Yeah. It's good. Very good. It is <laughs> is quite the world we live in and quite the history we uh, we humans have created. Yeah. And so Robert Chambers went and lived in probably one of the most exciting times to ever live in Paris. Which is saying something. Yeah. Came back to the United States, wrote a conservative butthurt fantasy about why all of those people (laughs) sucked and were disgusting and lame, Mm -hmm. and uh, built himself a career on it. I suppose it's one way to make a buck. What a loser. Yeah, it's a... I mean, yeah, you just could have had fun, you know, made some friends, relaxed. What's the over-under on uh, the universe presented in The King in Yellow in part only existing because he was bullied by some queer French art students and didn't like it? Yeah, I mean, and foiled foiled ambitions seem to have particularly horrifying impacts on a certain kind of small man. And I mean, like, in a fr- fragile ego yeah. kind, of, kind of person. And yeah, that's just... The, and of course, the the ironic tragedy is the the very thing that they wind up rejecting, which is empathy and thought, is the sort of thing that could have helped them yeah. in that moment had they had the wherewithal to express their needs or to be open and vulnerable with somebody else. And anyway, no, that's where uh, madness lies. I, I, you know, maybe I, I openness and vulnerability turns you into Hildred. Ty, come on now. Well. I mean, maybe I need the West cure here, but um, <laughs> which honestly sounds great, although I could do without the hunting, but it, it would be fun to go camping. Yeah. Yeah. With like people I like, not just a bunch of strangers who were trying to beat the effeminate out of, but the woods are fun. 
Yeah. It's good, it's good for you to go to the woods sometimes. And, you know, listener, if you're out, if, if any listeners out there suspect that they might be gay, get together a bunch of same-sex friends and go out in the woods for a few weeks and see how it goes. See what happens. <laughs> it'll, it'll cure you. It's the West cure. It's hot. Uh, it's horny. Yeah. You know they were all having sex around those campfires. It's, uh, I mean, don't forget your polishing rags. Yeah. Your, your hammer sounds. It is fascinating to look at a world predicated on poisonous literature polluting the youth mm-hmm. and queerness being forbidden and dangerous and disgusting and to think that it was outlined what like a hundred and how many years ago 1895 that'd be like 130 about at this point yeah are you sure this book just wasn't set in contemporary florida (laughs) close very close book bans and don't say gay and all that i mean uh, this sort of of course it's not just florida it's stuff everywhere and there's plenty of people in florida doing their damnedest to push back but it is astonishing to me that how just how cyclical all of this stuff is. And it does seem, this is not to say that there hasn't been any progress. I do think in many ways we are better at accepting a wider array of people into real areas of society, you know, that visibility in media, in politics, in whatever. We're still so bad at it. Yeah. That's the thing that really makes me sad is like, we're maybe as good as it have, as we've ever been, broadly speaking, and it's still so rough out there for so many folks, you know, who aren't part of the, the kind of typical dominant demographic structures. Yeah. Maybe we'll have another world war about it. I would rather not. It kind of seems like we're headed that way. Well, I'm, look, I'm not going to, let's just say I wouldn't bet against it. <laughs> um, I'm going to maintain my, as a, a friend of mine once said, pessimism of the spirit optimism of the will there we go actually i think pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will i'm going to revise oh i like his that comment that seems to be at least the only way i can psychologically keep myself trying to make an effort that's fair um in the fit because it is just overwhelming in so many ways yeah yeah well one thing that will help is uh you, Ty, and any of you out there, if you get the chance to go to art school in a famously liberal and sexual country during a famously liberal and sexual time, mm-hmm. don't be a turd about it. Maybe just like Deal. cut loose, drink some f- wine and like, I don't know, bone somebody. Like, oh, Sounds great. Be, be cool, guys. Yeah. And if you don't like drinking wine or you don't feel like having sex with people... Just get out of everyone else's way and have fun and and do all the other things. And yeah. you don't have to. Just because that's not your bag doesn't mean you have to ruin it for everyone else and write mean books. Yeah. Don't come back and write uh, scolding, anti-Semitic, racist, white supremacist, wet dream sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Maybe just give it a pass. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if a bunch of queer Frenchmen bully you about your painting... Maybe ask them if they have any tips about how you could paint better. Yeah. You know? Or not everyone is going to like what you do as an artist. And so you could get a thicker skin and learn to handle rejection a little more. Yeah. You could show your painting to other people, Mm -hmm. some of whom might like it. And that doesn't mean you have to then start making art that 
demonizes the people that didn't like your painting, but you could, you know, you find your audience. Yeah. People right? can't help you if you don't ask, you know? That's, that is the truth. Well, Ty. Grace. It was a little scattered, but I think we, we did it. We have found the Yellow King. We, well. No, we haven't. No. We have talked about one of the stories. We have seen the rise and fall of the repairer of reputations. Yeah. Murdered by his own cat, who was definitely not a metaphor for a lover. Right. Yeah. And we have seen Hildred put on the crown. Yeah. And, and die in an asylum. Yeah. As he deserves, question mark? Yeah. It seems to be what Chambers thinks. Uh-huh. What a the nice little, world. The little editor's note. Yeah. yeah. What a nice world we visited together. That's right. Yeah. It was good. Oh. Beautiful parks replacing bad architecture, which was not described, but just... What a, anyway. Yeah. Okay. The whole thing about architecture and all of the statues being traded out really reminds me of those um, Twitter accounts that you see all the time. They're like the cultural tutor and it'll post like some Georgian nightmare of windows and, and curlicues and be like, why don't we make buildings like this anymore? And you're like, because no one wants to. Yeah. Tastes change. Also, we do have to be attentive to like efficiency and ecological impact in the buildings we are going to build next, or else we're all going to burn in the fire of climate change. Chambers's brother was an architect, and I okay. I didn't have the time to go check and see if the buildings he made were profoundly boring, but I have a hunch. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because he made some fancy buildings and some French people made fun of him. <laughs> The whole Chambers family relentlessly just, bullied by the French. Just had, had a rough go. I have decided that this is the Really truth. just took it right in the baguette. Jeez. <laughs> you All could, right. You could cut that. That's that. That's it. We're done here. Uh, Ty. Yes. Do so you have anywhere you want people to find you? Uh, you can find me at typhelps.com, which has links to some music projects and some writing. Uh, you can, I guess, go on Instagram where mostly I post things about my residency at the Visual Arts Center of Richmond, which has been really fun and really cool and, and gotten to do a lot of experimenting. And so far, no French people have made fun of my pathetic visual <laughs> art attempts. And those are the main thing. I get also, uh, what would be wonderful is if we just bumped into each other in real life, because I'm, I'm just not on the internet a whole lot right now. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me back. This was so fun and such a fascinating story in terrible but interesting ways. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just great to talk about books with you. Yeah. yeah. And thank you all for being here. I'm so excited to start a new year with you guys well, and gals. 2024. Ladies and gentle thems. And uh, I'm really looking forward to some of the stuff we have coming up next. We're going to be doing a little bit of a dive into the literature of World War One, which is partly what The King in Yellow is kind of setting us up for, because mm -hmm. this is the cultural soup of panic and conservatism that immediately precedes the outbreak of the Great War. Yeah. So, you know, not the most cheerful stuff, but definitely fascinating. And we'll be doing some other stuff, too. We'll have an episode coming up on the Canterbury Tales soon. Oh, fun. It will be the first of a few, although we're not going to run them in a series. But mm -hmm. so I'm looking forward to that. Some raunchy stuff in the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> there is. Yeah, we the, will be talking ooh, about the it. The Miller's Tale. Ooh, boy. Ski you. Yeah. So lots of fun stuff coming up. Maybe some changes around here. I don't know yet. But I'm really, really excited to have you with us. And uh, in the meantime, if you can, this week, 
this month, this pay period, consider supporting a living author, because they could sure use the love. Indeed. Bye. Bye. Didn't Read It was created, written, and edited by me, Grace Todd. Kaylee Hughes is our publicist and producer. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at Didn't Read It Pod, or reach us via email at didn'treaditpod at gmail.com. For source notes and further reading, as well as a list of all existing episodes, please visit our website at didn'treaditpod.com. We are recorded in Richmond, Virginia, with special thanks to Black Iris Social Club and Pescatrio Publishing. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please consider leaving us a review or rating on your preferred podcasting platform, or just tell a friend. If you did not enjoy today's episode, we are currently accepting applications for a full-time nemesis. Our intro music is Books, written, performed, and recorded by William Albritton. 